0: Find a Bible, and in that Bible, find Philippians chapter three. There's some notes in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along with an outline of the sermon this morning, you can do that. Philippians chapter three. A few weeks back, we started Philippians chapter three, and I told you that chapter three marks the beginning of the end for the book of Philippians. And you can look back at verse 1 in chapter 3 where Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We talked about finally doesn't really mean he's right on the verge of wrapping up. What it means is he's transitioning to the last topic he's going to discuss in the book of Philippians. And that topic or that theme that he ends Philippians with is standing for the gospel. And so we've talked about how does a church How does a group of Christians together stand for the truth of gospel? Last week we talked about how did Paul summarize the gospel? What was that message that we're supposed to stand for? And this morning we're going to talk about how the gospel moves us towards spiritual maturity. We're going to start with a little bit of context just so we're all on the same page. In the previous passage, Paul argued that righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone. It only comes through faith alone in Christ alone. It's the only way that you can receive the righteousness that you need to be made right with God. That was the heart of Paul's gospel, the the heart of his ministry. That was the heart of the Protestant Reformation. This year is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther and what he did in starting the Protestant Reformation. That was the heart of the Reformation. It's the heart of what we preach today, is that we can only receive righteousness with God Through faith alone in Christ alone. Now there's two, historically, two perversions of that doctrine. Of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Two deviations that you see in history. One we'll just call legalism. Legalism says that you can work for and you can earn your righteousness. This is something you can do and you must do if you want to be made right with God. The legalist says you're going to have to pull your own weight. You're going to have to do something or a number of things, and you're going to have to not do certain things if you hope to have righteousness before God that leads to salvation. Ultimately, it's going to be on your shoulders to do it, to earn it. The other perversion is what we'll call antinomianism, anti meaning against, namos is the Greek word for law, so this is the view that is against the law, and this is the view of people who would say, look... If we're really saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then what we do or don't do has no bearing on it one way or the other. You can trust in Christ, and then you can do whatever it is that you want to do. The antinomian says there are no moral laws that you must obey. What you need to do is trust in Jesus, and then, you know, it would be great if you obeyed, but you don't have to. Because it's all grace anyways, and we're trusting in Christ, and it's not up to us. So you can just do with your life whatever it is that you want to do. And you see in history these two deviations, these two perversions of what Paul's talking about here. And if you look at the passage we've already talked about, Philippians 3, 1 to 11, you see Paul battling the legalist. And Paul's saying to the legalist, it can't be that way because our righteous deeds are a bunch of rubbish. You can't earn your way with God. It doesn't work that way. And then he pivots, starting in verse 12. This morning our passage is verse 12 to 16. And he starts to take on these antinomian guys, these guys who say you can do whatever you want to in your life. And he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, God's grace doesn't just save us from sin, save us from hell, but it changes us into the kind of people that God actually wants us to be. And he doesn't want us to go off the rails in either direction here. So here's the big idea of our passage, very simple. Paul calls the Philippians, in the verses that we're looking at this morning, 12 to 16, he calls them to press on to spiritual maturity. Press on, he says, to spiritual maturity. We're going to read these verses. Let me just give you one more clarification. Sometimes you get lost on this uh, repeated word in English translations. But if you look at verse 12 down to verse 16, there's a word. Sometimes it's translated perfect. In some translations, it shows up as as the English word mature. You can see it uh, once, uh, let's see, in verse 12. And then he talks about it again down in verse 15. Translations use different English words, but the Greek word behind both of them is the same. It's a Greek word, teleos. And it's the idea of something being complete. It really conveys the idea of somebody being full grown and mature. You can use it in a physical sense. You're, you're complete, you're mature, you're grown. Paul's using it in a spiritual sense, saying, I want your faith to be complete. I want your faith to complete. To be mature. I want your faith to be full grown up. It's the exact same word that James uses in James chapter 1 when he says this Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect. And that's the word we're looking at in James. You may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And Paul's using the exact same word here in Philippians to say, Look, I want you to be mature and perfect, and grown up in your faith. And he's calling them to press on to spiritual maturity. So look at the passage with me. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 12 to 16. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would make clear to us this doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Guard us from the temptation of legalism. Father, remind us that our good deeds, our spiritual resumes, are just rubbish, they're filthy rags. Father, and guard us from the danger and the temptation of of casting off all moral laws and obligations and charting our own course father bind us to the truth and do it through the power of your word this morning father we pray especially for those who are here in the room who maybe have been to church maybe have been around church maybe have heard about jesus but they don't know him and father we pray today as we talk about your word and as we've sung about your word And even as we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, that this would be the day where they meet Jesus and they know him in a saving way. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. One simple question this morning, how do you do it? Paul says, press on to spiritual maturity. How do we do that? Just a few observations from the text and we'll try to apply these as we go. Number one, how do you press on? You begin by admitting that you haven't arrived spiritually. You've got to be honest with yourself, about yourself. Paul does that in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this. And if you're tracking in the flow of the argument, you say, well, what is the this? What is it that he hasn't attained? All you have to do is back up to the verses we looked at last week. Verse 10 in chapter 3, he says, I want to know him. So I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So he left off talking about the resurrection, when the believer will be fully glorified, fully conformed to the image of Christ. And he picks right up with that idea of resurrection and glorification, and he says, now look, I'm not there yet. i got a long ways to go. God's not done working on me yet. I haven't been glorified and put away this old man, this, this flesh. I haven't achieved that yet or I haven't obtained that yet. So he just starts off acknowledging, I am not perfect or complete now. And if you and I are going to press on, we've got to do that. We've got to acknowledge that we haven't spiritually arrived. And the idea with this uh, for Paul is this. He's satisfied with Jesus. We'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus is enough for him. What he's not satisfied with, what he hasn't attained, is this spiritual maturity that he's calling the Philippians to press on to. And you've got to appreciate Paul's humility, right? His honesty and his realness. He's calling this church to do something, press on to spiritual maturity. And then he just jumps in right beside him and he says, I'm trying to do the exact same thing because I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it. I'm pressing on towards this maturity to where my faith is. Will be full grown. So he says, I'm pressing on. He says it twice. Once in verse 12, he says, Press on. He says it in verse 14, Press on towards this maturity. And look how he phrases it in verse 13. He says, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on and straining forward. Every commentator I read this week said that what Paul is talking about comes from the ancient world of Greek racing. And there's sort of two opinions here. One opinion says he's talking about chariot races. And I don't know about you, but I think about a chariot and I think about sort of a big armored semicircle and it's got handles and all that stuff. But that's not how they did it in ancient Greece. It was more of like a small wooden platform. And you had a couple of wheels on the side. It was almost like, you know, the kids have, uh, my kids want these hoverboards. That you go on is think something small like that minimal right, and you're on this little platform and you're chained to these horses and you got the reins and you got to have great balance and you got to have great strength and if you really want to control the horse and and make it lead the chariot where you want it to go you've got to lean forward. Some say no he's not talking about chariots he's talking about ancient Greek Olympic foot racing we actually have an Olympic runner with us this morning. I don't know where Alec ended up sitting, but Alec could teach us a few things about Olympic racing. And you've seen the races on TV. At the end of that race, these guys lean forward and they press in because they want to be the one to finish the race. So some scholars say, no, it's not so much chariots, he's talking about foot races, where these guys get to the end of the race and they just want to press in and lean in a little bit more so that they get the prize and they get the crown. Either way, the imagery is the same. He's talking about a race, and he's saying your life is like this race. Look, you don't receive grace from God and the righteousness of Christ by faith and then put your life on spiritual autopilot until you die. That's not how it works. There's a million people in the Bible Belt that think that's exactly how it works. I prayed a prayer, or I went to a VBS, or I went to a camp, and I did the thing, and I got baptized, and now you just sort of coast and wait. It's easy. Paul's saying, no, it's not like that at all. This is like a race. You haven't finished anything. You just started something, and you got to get in this race, and you got to press on, and you got to run hard, and you got to strain forward for the prize. And He's calling this church, and he's calling us to spiritual maturity. I don't know exactly how this would apply to your life but let me just throw a few ideas out if it's been years maybe even months since you learned something new about god i wonder if you're pressing on i mean i've read a lot of books we can talk about a lot of things But when you're pressing on, you're continually learning new things. There was a woman in this town, and she was visiting with me right after we moved here. And I'm going to paraphrase her, but I'm going to be pretty close to what she said to me, okay? She said, you know, I don't really need to go to church anymore because I, I know everything there is to know about the Bible. Really? Well, there you go. Thank you for gracing us with your presence from time to time. I wanted to say I don't think you know as much as you think you know if you think you don't really need to come anymore. I think you missed something along the way. If it's been months or years since you learned something new, I think you need to just stop and say, am I, am I really pressing on? Or do I have it on spiritual autopilot here? Am I coasting to the finish line? I think if it's been months Let's shorten it down and let's just say if it's been weeks since you've been convicted about sin in your life, I think you're coasting, totally coasting. And I hope one of the things that happens when you come to big church is that, not that I try to lay some guilt trip on you, but we hold up our lives to the mirror of Scripture and we say, oh man, that's convicting. And it's not my attempt to make you go home and feel like a miserable worm that afternoon. It's my attempt to hold the scriptures up and to say, how, how does this fit in your life? And if it's been a long time since you've been convicted of sin, I just got to stop and wonder, are you really pressing on? If it's been years since you became a follower of Jesus and we asked you to come up We're not going to do this, but we asked you to come up and stand up in front of the church. You've been a believer for years. And we asked you to talk about the last time you felt close to God or the last time you experienced His presence or His grace in a meaningful way. If you would have to go all the way back to when you became a believer, then I think you became a believer and then you just sort of put it on autopilot. I'm not saying it needs to be five minutes ago. I understand there's seasons in your life where you don't feel particularly close to the Lord. I've experienced that. But if you would have to go back years or months, long periods of time to think of a situation or an instance where you felt close to the Lord and you experienced his grace in a new way, then I would just say, I I think you got it on autopilot. And Paul's not calling us to coast. He's saying, you got to press on. This is a race and you got to run hard all the way to the end, You know, one thing that's tempting for me, and probably for you, and one thing that's tempting for us as a church is to play the comparison game. And I ask you all those questions and you say, yeah, those kind of made me feel uneasy. But thankfully, the guy or the gal sitting next to me, they're way worse than I am on those things. And so, you know, could be worse. Or for us as a church to ask ourselves those questions and to say, yeah, but do you know what some of the other churches in town are like? I mean, they're just so dead and nothing's going on there. And we play this comparison game that we think for some reason makes us look better, feel better. I don't know. That game doesn't work. You want to play the comparison game? I just remind you of some of the things that Jesus said to some of the churches when he wrote letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He's writing to these seven different churches and he wrote to the church in Laodicea and he said, look, you guys think really highly of yourself. You think everything is great. You're pathetic. You're not a million miles within what I'm looking for in your church. You've deceived yourself. You you don't get it. He wrote a letter to a church in Sardis This one is almost more frightening. He said, look, to the church in Sardis, everyone else thinks you're alive. Everyone else thinks great things are happening in your church. I know the truth, and the truth is that you're dead. Externally, it all looks great. Everyone's excited. Sunday school class is full. It's all great. But I know the reality, and the reality is that you're not alive You're dead. So you can't play this comparison game where you try to make yourself feel better compared to someone else, another church, another family, another individual Christian. You can't make yourself feel better by saying, well, I play play the game pretty good. Everybody thinks that I've got it going on or we've got it going on or our church has it going on because God knows the truth. And Paul's calling this church one of his favorite churches. A church that he thinks is doing great things, but he's saying you got to press on. Don't let your foot off the gas. you got to lean forward into God's grace and press on. Here's a second way that we do it. How do we press on to spiritual maturity? You pursue the prize. Pursue the prize. We'll talk about what the prize is in just a minute. Let's talk about this pursuit. One of the things Paul says here is if you're going to pursue the prize, you can't be busy looking backward. Look at verse 13. I don't consider that I've made it my own, but here's one thing that I do. I forget what lies behind. I'm leaving it in the the past so that I can strain forward to what's in front of me. i got to leave the past in the past. And for Paul, if you're reading the book of Philippians and you're tracking with him, you know exactly what it is he's leaving in the past. It's his spiritual resume. It's all the things he used to take so much pride in. And you read it in context and you say, look, Paul doesn't mean like, remember the the Men in Black movie where they got the little pin and they zap you and you forget everything and your your memory goes blank? He's not saying like wipe your memory clean and don't ever think about it again because he just thought about it. He thought about it enough to detail it out. I used to do this, I used to do this, I used to do this. But he's saying, look, I got to put that stuff behind me. It's not my hope anymore. And what he's saying to you is, not that you have to wipe the past from your memory, but you got to leave it in the past. And as I thought about what does that look like in my life, what does that look like in your life, I think it means that we have to do two things. We're going we're gonna to forget what's behind us. Here's the first thing we've got to do. We've got to forget past victories. And again, I don't mean you forget them, spiritual victories, and you just leave them, wipe them out of your memory banks, but I mean, you've got to see the past as the past. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. My senior year of high school, our church went to a super summer camp. We didn't normally go, but we went this last year. And a uh, super summer, you go, and high school students, they go to a college campus, and you just sort of have youth camp at a college campus, and they do lots of different things. So we're at this this Super Summer camp, first time I ever went. And one of the things they do at Super Summer is they break you up out of your church group with other kids from other churches, and then they sort of match an adult sponsor up with you for the week. And you spend the week in your little small group talking about the, the Bible lessons and doing devotionals and all those kinds of things. And so we've got this guy, I don't remember his name anymore, but we've got this adult sponsor leading our small group every time we met for the whole week he would retell this story about something that had happened to him spiritually about 10 years earlier every time he would tell us this story and he would say I want you guys to experience the same thing because this is what happened to me back whenever and I was an immature stupid high school kid at the time but even I could sit in that small group and say Man, you're running on fumes. If all you got is 10 years ago, something that happened 10 years ago and you're still, you're still trying to pull that out of the closet and that's all that you have to sort of get you up and going spiritually, you got to forget that. you got to move on and live in the present. you got to draw, draw close to God today. You can't rely on what happened to you 10 years ago. I can't believe I'm about to use this illustration, but this really was in one of the commentaries I read, so I feel like it's church appropriate. you seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? It's in a commentary. I get to use it. It's safe. There's this guy in this movie. If you haven't seen it, you'll get the idea. It's pretty simple. His name's Uncle Rico, and he is living in the past, right? He's been out of high school for over a decade, and all he wants to talk about is a state championship football game and I was so great, and it was so great, and we were so great. And you look at this guy in the movie and you say, that's sad. I mean, it's funny in the movie. But in real life, that's sad. you got to, look, those were great victories. But they're in the past. And you got to move on. And I think one of the things that we have to do if we're going to press on spiritually is we've got to say, The victories in the past were great. God was faithful back then, but we can't be running on fumes today by living off the memories of the past, the spiritual victories of the past. That's true for you and I as individual Christians. That's true for your family, moms and dads, grandparents. As you try to lead your family in matters of faith, you cannot run off the fumes of the past. That's true for us as a church. We don't want to just wipe our memory of our history at Emmanuel and say those things don't matter, those people don't matter. We want to realize there were victories in the past, but they don't help us press on today. Paul's saying you've got to press on. That means you've got to, quote unquote, forget past victories. It also means, here's the flip side, that you forget past failures. And I'm trying to make this clear. I'm going to say it again. I don't mean wipe them from your memory because I don't really think that that's realistic or even possible. But I mean you got to leave them in the past. I think about Paul as one example of someone who had to do this. Paul's past involved persecuting Christians. Paul's past involved standing around with a group of men when they arrested Stephen and Paul was a guy that said I'll hold the coats so you guys can really rear back and get a good throw in at this guy and he stood there holding those coats and I don't know about you but I don't think it's realistic to think that Paul ever forgot that day I don't know how you would forget that holding the coats of a group of men who were stoning a Christian simply because he was a Christian I bet you Paul till the day he died could tell you how many coats he held And I bet you he could tell you the names of those men who threw the rocks. I bet you he could almost smell the dust that was kicked up as they stoned this man to death. I don't think he ever forgot it in his memory banks. But he had to leave that behind. It's in the past. And if Paul spends the rest of his life beating himself up over that, he doesn't accomplish anything for the Lord. You've got to leave it in the past. I think about Peter as another example of this. I don't think until the day he died that Peter ever forgot denying Jesus and cursing God while he denied Jesus. I bet Peter could tell you exactly what the charcoal fire looked like. I bet you he could tell you exactly what the little girl's face looked like who, who piped up and asked him a question. I bet you he could tell you exactly the four-letter words he used when he started calling down curses. He didn't forget it. But you got to put that in the past. And if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to press on to spiritual maturity, I understand that there's things in your past and my past that you're never going to get out of your brain. But you got to leave it in the past. And you got to move on. And you and I spend too much time beating ourselves up over junk that we've done in our past, you're not gonna press on in the faith and you're never gonna accomplish anything for God's kingdom. If you're gonna press on and chase the prize, you've got to forget what's behind you and you gotta actually chase the prize. And just as, as a quick reminder, Jesus is the prize. Don't forget that. Heaven is not the prize. Too often in the Bible Belt, we make Jesus a means to the end, meaning we say you need to invite Jesus in your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. Well, that's true in a sense, but that's not ultimately true because ultimately you should invite Jesus into your heart so that you get Jesus. You should turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for righteousness so that you get him. He is the pearl of great price, not heaven. He's the treasure buried in a field that you give up anything and everything else gladly and joyfully so you can get that one treasure, not heaven. And heaven is great because that's the place you get Jesus. Paul says this, if you're reading in context, look what he says in Philippians 3, 8. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He does not say, I count all that stuff loss so I can go to heaven when I die. He says, I count all that stuff loss so that I can know Jesus. That's the prize. So we're pursuing the prize, and that prize is Jesus. One last idea is this you've got to keep the gospel central. If you are going to press on to spiritual maturity, you've got to keep the gospel central. And there's a lie we believe sometimes as Christians. We think the gospel, that's the thing that you accept and you believe and you pray a little prayer when you become a Christian. And then, like, let's move on. Let's go to something deeper, something more so difficult to understand and something more applicable to my life. And Paul's saying in this passage, you don't ever get on from the gospel. That's it. It's what saves you, and it's what moves you to maturity. Look how Paul says it in Philippians 3. He says, verse 12, Not that I've already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I'm pressing on to make it my own. Why is Paul able to press on? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is where Paul is sort of putting up a hedge or a rail against legalism. Because when he starts talking about press on, you and I start thinking, oh, man, we better get our act together. Here we go. It is all on us to do this pressing. Press on. We're supposed to press on. And Paul says, wait a minute, let me remind you. The only reason I can press on or you can press on is if Jesus has already made you his. Is grace, first, last, and in the middle. He says the same thing if you flip back to Philippians chapter one, verse six. We've already talked about this verse multiple times, but he says the one who began a good work to you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. His confidence is not in the genuineness of the Philippians. His confidence is in God and his grace. He started the work in your life. He's gonna finish the work in your life. He says the exact same thing, not to leave chapter two out in verse 12 and 13. He says, I want you to obey Even though I'm gone, I want you to obey. Verse 12, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we say, okay, that's pressing on. That's something we got to do. And Paul comes back around the back in verse 13. He says, just understand that you're working because God is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen, the gospel is about what God has done to save sinners if you're looking on your outline, and didn't give you a blank there, and you want to circle something or star something, you circle God. It's what God does. It's not what we do for him, but it's what he's done for us. That sets our faith apart from every other faith on the planet. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what he has done for you. That's God's grace, and that's what Paul's talking about, where he says, Christ Jesus has made me his own you have to keep that central if you're going to try to press on because your heart is just like mine and we're prone to drift toward this idea of legalism where we say, I'm doing it I'm contributing it's all up to me and it's not God knows it's not and he knows that we're prone to think it is and so in his grace, he's given us as the church two reminders that it is not about what we do for him, but it's about what he does for us. And the first reminder he's given us we call baptism. I know that sometimes we think baptism and we say, yeah, that's where you stand up and you tell everybody what you've done. Wrong. 100% wrong. Baptism, when we immerse someone in water and they, they go under the waters of baptism, and they come out. Paul says it's a picture that you died, you were dead, and God brought you to life. Ephesians 2, left to yourself, you're spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. And baptism is a picture of that. You were dead, and now you're alive. And every time we do a baptism, we get up there, we turn the lights on in the baptistry, it's not so much saying, look what this person has done. They've invited Jesus into their life. What we're saying is, look what God has done. God took one who was dead and he made him alive in his grace and in his mercy. And we believe God's going to finish what he started, Philippians 1.6. That's what we're saying in baptism. The second reminder he's given us is the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And all too often, we get it flipped, and we say, oh, man, the Lord's Supper. That's where you listen to the sermon, and then you got about five minutes to confess all your sins before the stuff comes by. And i got to, man, get, start listing it out. Here we go. I said this. I did this. I did this. And you start going through all the things, so you feel good enough to do it. What are you saying? You're saying, let me see what I can do for God. And if i messed that up, let me try to make amends really, really, really quick. That's not the Lord's Supper at all. The Lord's Supper is where we come together as a church and as individual followers of Christ and we say, we have completely and totally blown it. We don't have any good thing to offer you. And we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ joyfully, gladly, willingly laid down his life for ours so that we could be forgiven. He chose to bear our sins in His body on the tree. And we take that bread, not saying to God, Let me try to be better this week, or I think I was pretty good this week, or I'm sorry I wasn't so good this week. We take it saying, That's my sin. And He bore it. And we're thankful for that. And we take the cup, not saying, I'm going to try really hard to be on my game this week, God. We take it saying, I'm a sinner. in in deed, in word, in thought, all of it. And I believe that the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to wash me clean. That's what we're saying when we take the Lord's Supper. It's not our attempt to come before God and say, look how good I have been, or look how good I'll promise to be. But it's us saying, God, we're not good. And in your grace and your mercy, you provided exactly what we needed at the cross. Somebody to bear our sins. And to spill his blood for our forgiveness. And we believe what Paul said to the Philippians that when you put your faith in Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, but the righteousness of Jesus is given to you as a gift. And all of that gospel hope we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. So this morning, here's what we're gonna do our band's gonna come up in a minute. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper as the elements come by. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we would love for you to celebrate with us. Not saying, this is how good I am or will be, but trusting in what Jesus has done. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you'll come back. We ask this morning as the elements come by that you just let them pass you by and you spend a few moments thinking about what it means to follow Jesus and to trust in him alone for righteousness and salvation. So you bow and let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we believe that it's true and we believe that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, you know our hearts and you know the ways that we're prone to deviate to the right or to the left towards legalism or towards casting off all moral restraints. Father, guard our hearts in the truth of the gospel, especially as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. Guard our hearts. And Father, we take the bread and we take the cup mindful that we are sinful people in desperate need of your grace. And we take it celebrating the fact that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done for our salvation. Father, be honored as we take of the bread and as we drink of the cup